I don't have a lot of time to recap where we are in our travels through Genesis, other than to say that we've been looking at an interesting season of Jacob's life. Jacob has had his name changed by God to Israel, a man known to be wrestling with God, finally yields, finally submits. He experiences a total transformation. Jesus says, no longer will you be known as Jacob or, or heel catcher, supplanter. But from this day forward, you'll be known as Israel or a man governed, one governed by God. So we see that there was this wrestling for years between, between Jacob and God. And then Jacob finally, he wrestles with God and he submits. But that doesn't end the battle. As a matter of fact, a whole new wrestling ensues. What ends up taking place is that this man Israel, a man governed by God, transformed by God, by God's grace, is now wrestling with his old identity, Jacob. As a matter of fact, as we looked at last Sunday, though his name was changed to Israel, he had encountered God in this radical way. His next step led him to fall flat on his face. And then the steps that continued. Jacob, we see, way more than Israel. We get to chapter 34. And we're told that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. They're located near a town named Shechem. And when Shechem the namesake, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw Dinah. He took her, laid with her, and violated her. We discussed this last Sunday. Jacob and his family had no business being in such proximity. Dinah had no business going to see the daughters of the land. It began with her eyes, then it stirred to a desire within her heart, and it led to a tragedy. Should have never been there. Well, we're told in verse 3 that Shechem's soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. You can kind of hear that he's a spoiled brat. So Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it, and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Aside from the fact that Hamor here, this father, completely excuses his son's behavior, going so far as we could say to be an enabler, what he's proposing, this agreement he's proposing to Jacob, is not a good dynamic. Hamor is, in a sense, proposing the full assimilation of Jacob's family with his. It wasn't just that, hey, Shechem is really into Dinah, uh, let them marry, but to sweeten the pot, it's like, and then, you know, our sons will marry your daughters and your sons will marry our daughters. We'll just kind of become one clan, one family. And the problem with this, and the reason that this is such a danger, is that if Jacob conceded the blending of his seed with this Canaanite tribe, the Messianic line, 
would have been irreparably tainted. This was a danger. This was a compromise they couldn't come back from. Well, verse 11, Shechem said to Dinah's father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your sight. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me whatever, so much dowry and gift, I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. Shechem here is so desperate to have Dinah as his wife that he basically is presenting here kind of a blank check. And in some regards, a side deal. While the previous verses have documented a proposed agreement between Hamor and Jacob, this deal seems to be Shechem striking a deal apart from the fathers with the sons. What it implies is that Jacob has already turned away Hamor's proposal. Now, while we already know that these boys are rightly infuriated over what's taken place, what's happened to their little sister, it would seem that even before Shechem came that a plot has been hatched. We read, the sons of Jacob spoke deceitfully. They had no intention of accepting this proposal, accepting this deal. They spoke deceitfully to, to Shechem. How ironic, isn't it, that Jacob's boys are scheming. Well, verse 14, so the boys said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. That would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you. And we will take your daughters to us. And we will dwell with you. And we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. The plan here is, is, is simple. While the fathers had failed to reach a deal, the boys come to Shechem and they're like, listen, our pops, they're a little old-fashioned. We see some, uh, some benefit maybe in this particular union, but we have one big issue that's kind of a hang-up. You see, we're circumcised. And so in order for us to give our daughters to you, you would have to also be circumcised. So if, if that's too much to ask, no big deal, we'll go our way. But if you want to reach an agreement, then you and your father and everyone will need to become circumcised. Well, their words, verse 18, pleased Hamor and Shechem. Why? I have no idea. That's a terrible agreement. So the young men did not delay to do the thing. Because he delighted in Jacob's daughter, he, speaking of Shechem, was more honorable than all those of the household of his father, giving the indication that Shechem was a real tool. The rest of his family was also tools. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city. So they've got to sell this deal to the other elders of the town. And he spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men, speaking of Jacob and his sons, they're at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land, trade in it, for indeed the land's large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and give them our daughters. Only on this condition, though, will the men consent to dwell, to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male 
among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them and dwell with them. And all who went out of the gate of this city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. (laughs) Jacob must have had quite a presence. Every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came to pass on the third day. And I think this is probably the understatement of the year. When they were in pain. That two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword. And they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob, probably alluding to the other sons, came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city, what was in the field, all their wealth. All their little ones and their wives they took captive. And they plundered all that was in the houses. Now for starters, well you can rightly understand that Dinah's brothers are justifiably upset. Well you can even understand that, that, that the desire to take vengeance upon Shechem for what he had done to their little sister was appropriate. That said, what happens in these verses is nothing shy of a brutal, unjust retribution. What they do here, it's bitter revenge. It's not justice. Though one could make the argument that Shechem, he had what was coming to him. If the story was just simply that that Simeon and Levi went and cut down Shechem for what he had done, you'd probably kind of gloss over and be like, yep, that was warranted. Way to go, guys, defending your little sister. But this act of then also killing Hamor, all of the men in the city, that's, they did it when they didn't have a fair fight. You understand how this was working. It's, it's tactfully a brilliant plan. We're going to kill them all, so let's, uh, let's have them circumcise themselves, and then we'll go in. Imagine the last thing you did on this earth was circumcise yourself, and then you're taken out. I mean, it's, it's terrible, but, but, but what they do, how they confiscate the wealth and enslave the women and the children, it's without justification. And it's important for you to note in looking at the text Did God sanction this? Did God command this? Did God instruct this? Did God approve of this? Not at all. God did not approve of their actions. As a matter of fact, there would be severe consequences to both Simeon and Levi. Not to spoil the story, but later on, Simeon, as a punishment for this act, 
His tribe ends up being assimilated into the tribe of Judah. Levi isn't given any inheritance in the land as a result of this particular sin. Not sanctioned. Verse 30. So Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Please note why Jacob was so upset with Simeon and Levi. Was Jacob upset that they had done this thing that was so horrendous? No. Was his anger aroused over their brutality? Like, the under, like, how could my sons even do such a thing? No. Was he grieved over the unjust nature of what they had done? Not at all. Jacob says, you have troubled me. Or literally, what you have done is now causing me problems. Because of the actions of Jacob's sons. Because those actions weren't going to play well with the surrounding clans and tribes and families who were much more powerful than Jacob, Jacob's displeasure here manifests as he considers the unintended consequences of their actions and not the actions themselves. It's not that what they did, Jacob is upset with. It's the fallout of what they did. The point that shouldn't be lost in all of this chaos is the underlying reality that everything that happened Dinah's violation and the actions of his sons can be traced back to one thing. Jacob's failure to obey God and live consistent with the new identity he had been given. The truth is that none of these things would have happened if Jacob had just obeyed the Lord to not just return to the land, but to head to the house of his father, his flesh yielded these results. Though Jacob had a life-encountering interaction with God, one that changed him into Israel, you can't escape the fact, and I think this story is presented to us as an example, of the reality that his flesh had caused him to fail as both a leader and a father. This statement. Notice the sons. You want to talk talk about some moxie. I mean, they, they said, they said, Should he treat our sister like a whore, like a harlot? See, what they're they're doing in response to Jacob saying, you're causing me problems, what they're saying is that they're, they're justifying their actions by pointing out the inaction of their dad. You failed to do anything. Oh, we're causing you trouble. You did nothing, dad. We did this because our sister had been violated. Because you were afraid, we had to take matters into our own hands. Jacob's failure to obey God, Jacob's compromise, his complacency, his flesh, had eroded his very standing in the eyes of his own children. Dads, I just, on a side note, it's not what you say to your children that matters. That will not be the gospel they live by. It's what you do that matters. It's how you you behave. It's how you live. You have a profound influence. Years ago, 
I was a youth pastor, and I had a, a guy that was in our youth group kind of walk away from the Lord, became an atheist, and he was one of those unfriendly atheists, always wanting to pick a fight on Facebook, and I engaged in conversations with him here and there. Well, I happened to be at Frontera, a restaurant in Snellville, and his dad was sitting at the bar. I mean, he was like four and a half margaritas in a happy hour. He was pretty sloshed, and he sees me, and we start talking. He goes, can you believe my son is an atheist? I taught him better than that. I raised him to believe in God. And I looked at that man. I said, you know what? He's just articulating the worldview he learned from you. Because you talked like you followed God, but your God wasn't real. You failed as your example. I thought he was going to punch me. Not a, not a really good thing to, to bring up at Frontera with that much alcohol involved. But my point, my point, dads, you have an influence. Jacob's compromise placed his family in a very terrible situation. Well, chapter 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now, don't forget the context, right? Jacob is in the place of abject failure. He's failed to fully obey God's instructions to return to his father. He's compromised by settling in Succoth before then moving to Shechem. He was absent when his daughter Dinah went to places she had no business going. Then when she was raped, Jacob acted in fear, leaving his sons to behave in a barbaric and unmeasured way. Now, Jacob is afraid of the fallout of their actions. Instead of allowing his decisions to be governed by God, Israel, Jacob's flesh had continued to make a mess of things, a mess that had only fostered negative results in his own family. Aside from this, there is no evidence that as he's afraid of retribution, that Jacob fell to his knees and prayed. There's no evidence that he petitioned the Lord. He's not praying. He's not seeking God for guidance. He's not seeking God for divine intervention. And yet, I take it as such a great encouragement that in the place of Jacob's failure, what happens? Then God. Then God, God comes to Jacob and he speaks to him. And what does he do? God provides him a very simple invitation. Jacob, isn't it time for you to come back to Bethel? You know that place that you and I first encountered? That location where you first tasted, first experienced my grace? Jacob, don't you think it's time to return to my house and connect with me again? And notice, the invitation wasn't to simply return, but to dwell there and to make an altar. If you recall last Sunday, Jacob had set up an altar in Shechem, but it wasn't in response to anything that God had done for him. Instead, we can assume Jacob had set up the altar in Shechem in an attempt to appease God. As the flesh always does, Jacob wanted God to bless his partial obedience. He wanted God to bless his compromised life. And yet God would have nothing of it. Understand this. God's grace 
is only effective in the life of a person who will receive it and act accordingly. Like, I hope you know this morning that if you reject God's amazing grace, his grace is rendered powerless in your life. Yes, grace is sufficient, more than sufficient, in the place of your failure, but not in the place of open rebellion. You know, I also find it fascinating here that while God is clearly speaking to Jacob, did you notice something kind of interesting in the way that, that it was all structured? God's words are being presented through the prism of Jacob's thoughts. Did you see that? As Jacob is dealing with the fallout of his disobedience and his son's actions, he has a thought. Understand, God didn't speak to him in an audible, loud voice. This wasn't a burning bush. This wasn't a dream. This wasn't a vision. This was his thoughts. As he's contemplating, as he's chewing on what's next, the thought enters his brain. You know what? I need to arise. I need to get up. And it's time for me to go to Bethel. And I need to dwell there. And I need to make an altar to God. It was in his thoughts. And yet Jacob recognized that this thought hadn't originated in himself. Instead, it was a divine instruction. God speaking through his thoughts. So often when we anticipate God speaking, we want it to be in some like overt and obvious way. But you know, it's the still small voice. And it often is just thought that comes out of nowhere. That then if we act upon it, and it's in retrospect, we can see, wow, that wasn't just a thought. That was God. The other, the other day, I <clears throat> was working on a Bible study, and, and just thought came into my mind, a buddy I hadn't seen in years. Just out of the blue. Totally random. Wasn't something I had... You know, it, there was nothing that, like, had popped up. I didn't get a message or an email or, or whatnot. He just, out of the blue, this guy, he just came to my mind. And I felt like the Lord was like, you need to call him. So I grabbed my phone. I called him. I hadn't talked to him in a few years. 30 minutes before I called him, he had just gotten word that his grandmother had passed away. And I was able to minister to him and to encourage him. And in retrospect, I'm like, man, that was God speaking to me. I would have never known if I hadn't just been obedient. To obey those impressions, those thoughts, acts of kindness. Well, verse 2, Jacob said to his household, to all those who were with him, put away your foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise and go to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way in which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, the earrings which were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree or an oak tree, which was by Shechem. So he buries them. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. 
he and all his people who were with him. And Jacob built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he had fled from the face of his brother. Keep in mind, it's been 30 years since Jacob has been to Bethel. And what's fascinating is that clearly Jacob's perspective has evolved. Following his first encounter with God, Jacob names the place Bethel, Bethel, meaning house of God. In his spiritual infancy, Jacob had superstitiously placed an undue emphasis on the location of his interaction with God. This place, there's something special. No, there's nothing special about the place. And yet, now that he's returned to Bethel, what do we see him doing? Jacob builds an altar, and he calls the place El Bethel, which means, literally, God of the house of God. Now, what makes this fascinating to me is that it communicates Jacob, at this point in his life, has an understanding that he didn't need to return to a place. What Jacob needed more than anything was to return to a person, Bethel, the house of God. How interesting. Jacob is no longer interested in the house of God, but instead the God of the house. And what was it? What was it that was transforming him? What was it that was, was it law? Was it rebuke? Was it condemnation? Was it a good punishment? A good raking over the coal, so to speak. What changed Jacob's life? And what continued to change his life? Jacob would act like an idiot, then God. His grace. The fact that God meets us even in our darkest places. Well, verse 8, now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under an oak tree, a terabith tree. So the name of it was called Elion Bakuth. Admittedly, that's kind of a random verse. Like just out of the blue, we just get this one little nugget thrown into the middle of the text. That said, what we have here is significant. If you recall back in Genesis chapter 24, when Abraham sent Eleazar back to Haran to find a bride for Isaac, we're told that he found Rebekah. Rebekah, the story is unfolding, is sent to, to return with Eleazar, is going to be the bride. She's sent with a, a maid, a nurse, by the name of Deborah. Now, we have no idea when or how Deborah has now joined Jacob. And yet her presence here is significant. To begin with, Deborah was Jacob's last human connection with his mom. Don't forget, the last time Jacob saw his mother was that fateful day they hatched a plot to deceive Isaac. Esau gets bent out of shape, and Jacob is sent away. Jacob was a mama's boy. He loved his mom, and, and Rebekah loved him. That was the last day he saw his mom alive. Imagine the stories of just hearing from Deborah, that connection. It was meaningful. Aside from this, I also think it's important 
that Jacob's that 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 Rebecca's nurse ends up with Jacob, indicating something I think that's something important. <clears throat> Isaac, unlike his father Abraham and Jacob, Isaac upon Rebecca's death didn't find solace in Deborah. We don't know how or when or why. Deborah was sent to Jacob. My estimation, it was upon Rebekah's death that then Deborah is sent to Jacob. Meaning that Isaac wanted it to be clear that he was and would always be a one-woman man. Which is interesting when you take it into account that Isaac presents for us a picture of whom? A picture of Jesus. Verse 9, then God appeared to Jacob again. When he came from Pada Aram and blessed him, And God said, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you. And kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give it to you and to your descendants after you. I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone. He poured a drink offering on it. He poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. Now it's been 10 years since Jacob has left Haran. 10 years since God has changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And in the process of these years, Jacob has failed to live up to his new identity. Jacob has allowed his flesh to remain in control. He suffered as a result incredible consequences. And yet, now that Jacob has finally returned to Bethel, and more specifically the God of Bethel, we see something incredible, don't we? There is no judgment with God. There is no condemnation, no rebuke. Instead, God simply invited him to return to the place where he started before then reminding Jacob of what? of who he really was. After all of this failure, ten, changes his name to Israel, we get a lot of Jacob. Ten years of Jacob makes a mess of things. He comes back to Bethel, comes back to the God of Bethel. And what does that God say? Yo, you're not Jacob. You're Israel. I hope you know, in your place of failure, when you fail to live up to that new identity that you've been given in Christ Jesus, God is not angry with you. <laughs> Nor is he surprised. He's pretty aware you're going to fail. But God does not condemn. And he does not judge. Instead, in the place of your inadequacy, what does God do? He simply invites you to return. To come back to him. To that place where it all started. The cross. Where your sins were forgiven. Upon whose sacrifice you were declared Righteous God, when you're in the muck and the mire, he doesn't highlight your sin. He doesn't emphasize how disappointed he is. Instead, what does God do? He reminds you how sufficient Jesus is. And in doing so, God tenderly reminds you and I that while we might have failed, guess what? We're no longer that person. You see, my failure, your failure, is no longer the product of who I am in Christ. It's the product instead of the old man. That poor decision 
was the result of your flesh, not God's spirit. And what's amazing is that's not how God sees you. He reminds Jacob that he still saw him as whom? As Israel. Never forget what really causes repentance. God's grace. It is the grace of God that leads a man or woman to repentance. In Galatians 5, we're instructed to walk in the Spirit so that you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Meaning, when you mess up, when you blow it, like Jacob, by walking in the flesh, the ultimate remedy is what? To just get back to walking in the Spirit. This is why God reminds Jacob, bro, you're not that man. I've made you Israel. So verse 16, they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to Eprath, Rachel labored in childbirth. And she was hard labor. And it came to pass that the midwife said to her, do not fear you will have this son also. Like for, first off, the, the way that I think, I've just got some questions here. Why would Jacob leave Bethel? Especially when you take into account Rachel is in her third trimester. Like, why not just hunger down, just chill out until she has the baby, right? And I think there's two reasons. First, Jacob finally understands that Bethel, the location, matters not. Instead, it's his relationship with the God of Bethel that's significant. Beyond this, it would also seem that Jacob is now finally obeying the instructions of God. When he left Haran, it was to return to the land and to the house of your father. He's finally returned to the land, tarried. Now it seems, by the context of the end of the chapter, that he's on his way to the house of his father, meaning that he's being obedient. Sadly, as they're making this way south through Eprath. In full obedience to God, Rachel, who's very pregnant with her second son, goes into labor. The labor was hard, meaning she was experiencing complications. It was dangerous at some point in the process. And don't detach yourself from the humanity of these characters, the humanity of the moment. But it becomes clear to Rachel and the midwife, she's not going to make it. Now you can imagine the first thing that pops into her mind. Will my son survive? And yet the midwife calms her fear, saying that the baby boy would make it while she wouldn't. The the emotions of this situation. And so it was, verse 18, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Eprath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. How brutal of a moment that must have been to watch the love of his life, Rachel, bleed to death on the side of the road. Like following the delivery in her last few moments, as her soul is departing, Rachel is able to hold her baby boy for the first and last time. With her final breath, she names him Ben-Onai, which is translated, son of my suffering. Now, this is where Jacob does the right thing. Not wanting his, his son to carry that particular burden, he changes his name to Benjamin, which is translated, son of my right hand. 
According to Moses, Jacob proceeds to bury Rachel, setting a pillar on her grave in an area known as Bethlehem, pointing out that the pillar to Rachel's grave was still in existence that day. Consider for just a minute the conditions by which this painful event took place in Jacob's life, right? Jacob has returned to Bethel. He's reconnected with God. He's experienced God in a radical way. He's been reminded of his new identity. God has reiterated all of his promises. Sure, Jacob had failed but God's promises would remain sure. Spiritually speaking, Jacob is in the best place of his life. He departs from Bethel, finally obeying God's commands to return to his father's house when this tragedy strikes out of nowhere. I can imagine, as Jacob is burying his wife, Rachel, that he's thinking to himself, as anyone would, right? God, why? Why did you allow this to happen? I could have stayed in Bethel until Rachel had carried to term, but I was being obedient to you. I was finally obeying, and then this is what I get? I was doing the right things, and this is how you repay me? Oh, the humanity. Why, God, why? I thought you loved me. Well, verse 21, we read, Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent towards the tower of Eder. Did you catch that? In the verse before we read, Jacob set up a pillar. And yet following this painful moment in his life, we're told what happens? Israel journeyed. While Jacob, while Jacob may have blamed God, Israel would not. Instead of succumbing to his flesh, Israel took solace knowing who he was in Christ because he knew who Christ was. Though I can't explain why this happened, Jacob would think, I do know who allowed it, and I know he loves me and has a plan for my life, so I choose to trust him. Beyond this perspective, I've also found that death has an interesting way of reminding people of a very simple but profound truth. And that is the fact that this world, friend, is not our home. I hope you know that. It's simply a reality that death often makes the existence of our eternity unavoidable. I can imagine that as Jacob is burying his dearly beloved Rachel, it codified in his heart the understanding that this world was not his home, that he was nothing but a pilgrim passing through. So it happened When Israel dwelt in the land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Once again, that also seems like really bizarrely out of place in the flow of everything. It is a bizarre detail, right? As Israel is dwelling in the land, and the the idea being that Jacob has finally arrived to the house of Isaac, but while he's dwelling in the land, finally fulfilling the life God had called him to, Reuben, his oldest son, by Leah, ends up sleeping with Bilhah. And Bilhah was Rachel's handmaiden who had been given to Jacob as a surrogate. Bilhah, as such, is the mother of Dan and Naphtali, Reuben's half-brothers. Now, it's likely 
that Reuben and Bilhah weren't all that far apart in age. And we don't really have any idea what Bilhah's status had been relegated to after the death of Rachel. But we can say unequivocally that Reuben's actions are deplorable. And because the text implies that the sex was consensual, Bilhah's actions are equally shameful. Not only was this a crime against Jacob, but this was a sexual sin that the law would later make punishable by death. It's interesting that the only recorded response we have here to the sin is that Israel heard about it. Though it would appear from the translation that Jacob may have heard that his son had slept with Bilhah through some kind of an informant, you know, after the fact. The gossip mill was working its way through the camp, and he catches word. But that translation is misleading. From the original Hebrew, the better translation into English would be Israel heard. The words about it were added by the translators for context. Now, what makes that interesting is that the word heard literally means to listen to or to perceive by ear. The idea being that Jacob knew Reuben and Bilhah had sex because he had heard them having sex. Although there is no record of Jacob doing anything about this terrible action in this moment, with Reuben seemingly unaware that his father even knew about his transgression, at the end of the book, while Jacob is on his deathbed, you know what he'll do? He'll call out Reuben for his sin. And yes, it is as awkward as you think. Aside from Moses, including this detail, so we would later have a greater context as to why Jacob ends up having an issue with Reuben. Hey, you slept with my concubine. Like That's not cool. The other reason that I think this detail is included and what makes it important is the fact that it, it explains why Reuben, though he's the firstborn, and thus seemingly the heir, why he was no longer treated as the firstborn. Instead, because of Reuben's actions, being the firstborn of Leah, he ends up being cut out. And the firstborn status seems to now go to Rachel's firstborn son, a young man by the name of Joseph. Now the sons of Jacob were 12, the sons of Leah, Reuben, you can read through it. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Merimee, where Abraham and Isaac dwelt. And the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Verse 1 of chapter 36. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. I'm running out of time. So we're going to make this quick. First, I'm not reading through the chapter. Just, just scan it. Ain't happening. I'm not going to make an idiot of myself. I can't pronounce those names. You figure it out, go for it. It is a whole lot of names from an ancient people, an ancient culture. I have a hard time speaking English, yet alone that. We ain't reading through it. You can do it. Knock yourself out. You can study it in depth. Have fun. Here's the point of the chapter, very quickly. One, it explains the origins of uh, basically Israel's enemies, specifically the Edomites and the Amalekites, both who would descend from Esau. So it 
Moses giving the children of Israel, he's giving them some, some reference, some context of, of who these enemies are, that they're actually kin, they're half-brothers. The other reason that it's important is that uh, we're given three wives that Esau had, uh, meaning that Esau's bloodline is kind of the, the merger of four. First, he has the Hebrew lineage of, of Isaac and Rebekah. Two, he has Canaanite blood. Three, he has Ishmaelite blood. And you can look at this and read through it and study it on your own. I've got a lot more notes. We're just not going to get to it. Four, though, is you end up getting this weird gal, Aholabama. I practiced that one. Aholabama is a wife of Esau, one of his three wives. Now, what makes Aholabama interesting is that she descended from a group of people known as the Horites. The Horites... Yeah, I didn't, I didn't make that up. That, that's actually in the Bible. <clears throat> but the, the Horites were very similar to a group of people <clears throat> similar to the, the Eman, the Anakin, and the Zamzuman. Cool? Following me? Chapter documents it. Only reason that's important is that if you reference it with Deuteronomy chapter 2, Aholabama, being a Horite, is likely a descendant of the Nephilim or the giants, the same group of people that we find reference to in Genesis chapter 6, meaning that Esau's bloodline is tainted with this weird demon-human half-breed blood. You can look at it on your own. That's fine. That's all I'm going to give you. The last reason it's important, this chapter, is at the end, we're told that Esau intentionally moves his people out of the land of promise. He settles on the other side of the Jordan. And the reason he does this is because Esau recognized that the birthright and the blessing that God's hand and therefore the land was not on him, but was on his younger brother. And as such, he vacates the land so that his brother could thrive and grow, which is important because once again, this further substantiates the legal claim the children of Israel have as they're returning back to the land after 400 years in captivity. Chapter 36. It's a crazy chapter. There's more notes. You can read through it, study it on your own. But that is all we're going to do to discuss Esau. Father, we thank you for your word.